is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, very good afternoon to you. Great to have you along this afternoon. Today, between now and one o'clock, the state's main grain handler will respond to the industrial action that's taking place today, in fact, at the Quinana Grain Terminal. It's a, a series of sort of stoppages that have been happening over the last week or so as the workers and CBH try and finalise a new enterprise agreement. We'll get to the details of that after half past 12 today. Also shortly, just before news headlines at half past 12, taking a look at the egg situation here in the shops and the supply, as you might have noticed if you've been in the market for eggs, looking around the supermarket and the shops, uh, often the shelves are pretty bare and often there's uh, restrictions, or at least at my shop, there's a restriction on one carton per customer at the moment. What's behind that supply situation You'll find out shortly from a local egg producer. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And extensive road damage in the Kimberley has left WA's only major northern abattoir inaccessible. Owned by Yida Pastoral Company, the Kimberley Meat Company plant is located in between Broome and Derby, where major flooding has occurred in the wake of ex-tropical cyclone Ellie. With roads destroyed and no access to cattle, Chief Executive Michael Rapatoni says operations are on hold at the facility. We haven't had infrastructure damage to the abattoir itself, which is great news in the fact that we can process. However, we've lost a major part of our holding yards and obviously the water. We've had to let our processing cattle out into the paddocks to be able to survive the storm itself. So while we don't have infrastructure damage, we are really isolated through infrastructure and roads being damaged from the Fitzroy all the way into the abattoir itself, restricting movements of cattle and movements of uh, staff. So we, we have 90 staff currently employed at KMC. Some live in Broome, some live on plant, and we have approximately 20 staff that are isolated in Derby, and we're currently looking at evacuating them back to Broome just so they can get some services. Okay, so what's the situation at the plant there now? Is is anything operational? We're ready to go. We're ready to receive cattle. The issue is that, you know, obviously the rains and the floods, the water hasn't really subsided to the level where it's just going to take time. Obviously, we're at the northern part of that, so we, we're at that back end. There is still a lot of assessment happening at the moment from road infrastructure, cattle, and, you know, the pastoralists are doing an amazing job. We've set up a main roads camp at Cayman Sea. We've set up a pastoral camp for Yida, and we've also set up an emergency crew for processing at the plant itself. So we're, we're ready to go. We're just working out where the whole situation is and then where it unfolds. So still very early days at this point. So the abattoir itself is ready to be operational, but it's it's getting the cattle there to process. That's where the issues are? Correct, correct. We, uh, we want to provide an economic solution to the pastoralists, and that's really front and centre of the KMC mind at the moment, is how do we execute a plan that we can actually get cattle, particularly cattle that may be struggling with the ability to be fed into the operations to be processed. 
Are you anticipating that there'll be a fairly significant demand for the abattoir to reopen given that, you know, there's a lot of pastures that have been washed away with these floods and potentially won't be growing back for some time? We are planning for that and we're executing that plan as we speak and we're working closely, as I said, with main roads particularly to to get access roads going. So if the cattle's fit to load, we are here as part of our contribution to the industry to provide an economic solution for pastoralists, definitely. You mentioned that the holding capacity at the abattoir was limited. What are your other options or are there any solutions that you're looking at with that? Sure, we're talking with industry as in setting up some temporary holding yards down the Great Northern and we're also looking at some temporary yards that we may be able to complete at uh, KMC during this period. So that all takes time with support from local industry, government and, you know, infrastructure. So with all that in mind, I imagine there's a, a fairly big cost to, to Kimberley Meat Company. Have you got any idea of the, the damage bill that you might be looking at? Uh, still assessing. Uh, really early days at this stage. We said last week if we had 10 to 15 mils of water this week, uh, we wouldn't know what we would do with ourselves. But uh, last night we received 135 mils. So it's just the case that we're one month into a three-month wet season and, you know, it is part of the cattle industry in the north. But, uh, yeah, obviously with the floods in the last couple of weeks, it's it's added to it. So what are the next steps for Kimberley Meat Company? What are your priorities at this stage? Staff welfare particularly is priority number one for us. You know, a lot of the guys that have been on the land, it's, it's a long season. So they normally have a bit of respite during January to March. Um, they're not getting that, unfortunately. So... They're working 24-7 at the moment, you know, pushing cattle, keeping cattle alive, trying to get in the air to feed cattle. So they're our, you know, one of our major concerns. And then obviously we have 90-odd staff at the KMC plant that we're, we're very keen to keep employed. As you can appreciate, being so remote, it's not an easy task to, to employ that level of staff and, and maintain that staff. So... You know, it's it's very important for us to maintain that employment throughout this period so that when the flush season continues in the dry, that we're properly staffed for for operating at maximum capacity. And KMC was planning a pretty significant expansion at the abattoir, $35 million, I believe. What does this mean for those plans? Look, at this stage, priority number one for us is to make sure the industry survives this and and we all work together so those plans are a little bit on the back burner with priorities at the moment is just really the immediate is getting cattle making sure the cattle are fed and survive and and we have a flourishing industry for 2023 so i think that's priority number one for us and then we'll revisit the capex program once we get through this Kimberley Meat Company Chief Executive Michael Rappatoni speaking to Steph Sinclair. At 12 past 12 here on the Country Hour and you will be hearing shortly from the Emergency Services Minister with an update on the road situation and the bridge situation as a result of those floods very shortly. First though, that road damage that you've just been hearing about, it could leave other markets inaccessible for pastoralists in the Kimberley this season. Until parts of the Great Northern Highway are repaired, producers in the East Kimberley will be unable to export live cattle out of the Broome port. 
and those in the West Kimberley will be cut off from eastern markets. Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association Chair Jack Andrews says there are even fewer options for others. The reality for pastoralists that are between the two areas of roads that don't exist at this point in time is basically nil. There is no option for moving to the markets. We've quite literally cut off from our our markets, I guess our source of income. So the the constructions of those roads and the speed at which that will occur will be paramount to these businesses moving forward. When would cattle usually be starting to hit the market from the Kimberley and what would those markets usually look like? So some pastoralists that have the ability or certainly have the highway frontage to have lines of cattle available early in the season would move as early as February, with a few more coming online in March. So those properties that set the stations up to have early sales would have cattle along the edge of the highway that they can load out even in, in a normal wet season and be able to access markets. So moving forward, those markets would be you know, your slaughter-type cattle going through a processing plant or operation like that and your, and your feeder-type cattle into a live export scenario. Obviously, that's going to be compromised in our current situation until the infrastructure is in place that allows that to occur. So with that in mind, how do you expect markets to change this year, you know, with potentially limited options available for pastoralists looking to sell? It will be interesting. There's obviously rain right across Australia, so it'll be interesting to see what that does for pricing right across the, the entire country. Obviously, there's market access for some pastoralists in the Kimberleys to go out through the Northern Territory or through Wyndham. So you would imagine that will remain open to take a guess as to what it will actually do to prices. It's too early to even estimate at this point. But the reality is pastoralists will need income, especially these that have been affected by the floods, to move forward. So they will certainly be getting operating as soon as they can so they can start managing their stock. In terms of where those markets are, do you anticipate more cattle might go east or south or be processed locally? What are you anticipating this year as a result of this massive infrastructure damage? Yeah, I've had conversations with pastoralists towards the East Kimberleys there and their discussions already around about having to make or certainly put plans in place to potentially go into the eastern seaboard or through the Northern Church because they realise that this uh, infrastructure may not be in place to go through their normal channels. So, but pastoralists are certainly looking at options and there is a very real chance that the cattle from this part of the world will go elsewhere for sale. Are you expecting live exports out of Broome to be down significantly? That will really depend on how long these roads are impassable. If the roads are up and going relatively soon or in a couple of months, then potentially not. If this is a June-July event before we can actually start moving cattle up and down the roads, then it will certainly affect numbers going out of Broome. And Wyndham potentially could be an alternative option for those in the east, Kimberley, that might normally send their cattle west? Yeah, certainly the potential there to go out of Windermore once again further on, say, through Darwin. And that is why I think that will affect what's going out through Broome, because if the roads aren't open, parcels will still need a source of income and therefore they'll look for other avenues to market. I suppose, when's the best case scenario for you or for, for those in the region in getting access to those markets again? Ideally, we'd like to have access to the markets in, in March. Reality may be completely different to that. And there's such a broad timeline being given between eight to 12 weeks, ranging up to four to five months and maybe even longer, up to 12 months. That is a pretty daunting thought if we start looking out towards 12 months and, and 
one that we probably really struggle to find a way around if that is the case. Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association Chair Jack Andrews speaking to Steph Sinclair. 17 past 12, you're on the ABC right across Western Australia. Well, the Emergency Services Minister says it could take between two weeks to a month to open a stretch of the Great Northern Highway that's been damaged by the flood in the north of the state. Stephen Dawson visited the region just yesterday just to update flood-affected communities on the extent of the damage and the mammoth and costly repair job that lies ahead. The Minister says the main area of concern is the Great Northern Highway between Broome and Willare. There's probably a three-kilometre stretch that is of most concern big bits of the road have been washed away. There are two main roads, ground crews on the ground at the moment uh, at each end of that damage, assessing it and planning to get to get it up and running as quickly as possible. They estimate it'll take two weeks to, to, to a month to do. The reason why that variance, um, Nadi, is because there's still rain and there's still thunder and lightning up there. And so they've got to put in a temporary solution, you know, but they've got to do it around the weather that's up there at the moment. So that'll happen over the next... I guess two two weeks and a little bit longer, but they're on the ground ready to do it uh, at the moment. The other area of concern is the Fitzroy River Bridge or Fitzroy yeah. River Crossing itself, and that's massive damage. And so DFES are working with Main Roads, who are working with ADF, to try come up with a range of solutions, temporary and longer term, to get traffic moving from one side of the Kimberley to the other, but also you know people and livestock and everything else that needs to move. Is there a prospect that you'd actually have to rebuild that whole bridge? Yes, that's certainly one prospect. There's half of it that's that's okay, but they'll, they need to understand uh, how safe it is, how intact the structure is kind of down at the bottom. But they're looking, I mean, they're looking at all sorts of options. And in fact, there have been a range of Western Australian businesses who've reached out to offer their expertise. And so there was a good conversation between DFES and one of those yesterday. And so they've been plugged into the process too. And, and they're talking about a rebuilding or, or, or trying to yeah, repair? A, yeah, a combination. No, the, 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 the likelihood is that it will need a rebuild, but they're looking for temporary solutions to get traffic moving and to you know, to ensure that you get from west to east or east to west again. So there'll be there'll be temporary solutions, but but also longer-term solutions. They're also looking at re-enlivening kind of an old crossing that, that existed you know, years ago, and then they're looking at other routes, back routes to potentially kind of plug gaps. And so everything's being considered. The, the Gib River Road is also another area, um, a road of importance for tourism, particularly. Uh, they're looking at that as a potential possibility, at least some of using some of it to transport traffic. And, and those temporary solutions that you talk about, I, I'm assuming they would not be able to accommodate road trains. Uh, well, I, I guess, you know, we were very keen to get road trains moving uh, again. I mean, at this stage, uh, I think 170 permits have been issued for, for vehicles to travel through through SA and NT and, and to have an extra uh, an extra carriage on the back. Uh, we would dearly love to be able to have a road open again that will allow people to go from you know, from Broome to Kununurra, including road trains. But we'll have to just see what's available, what's, what's possible. Minister, you talk a lot about potential options. When are you going to actually make a decision on this? It's not for me to make a decision, Nadia. It's for the experts at Main Roads to make a decision. And as I said, they're on the ground at the moment. Okay, so when but are because, they going to make because, a decision then? Well, because the rain because the rain persists, Nadia, thunder and lightning persists, they will decide over the next few days what's, what's available temporarily and then they'll work out what, what options are available longer term. This is going to take you know, weeks and months and years, Nadia. This, there's no 
There's no quick fix solution for this. This was unprecedented damage. This is rain that Western Australia has never seen before. And while this area of Western Australia gets floods this time every year, nothing to this extent. Obviously now the cost of freight is going to go up. Um, Subsidies are available, but there are some businesses who are worried that they may miss out on government subsidies, subsidies if these goods or the goods that they're transporting are not deemed as essential. So what is essential? What sort of freight would be eligible for these subsidies? Well, so far, fruit, vegetables, food, all that kind of stuff, Uh, I think some white goods, household equipment has been deemed essential. Uh, What hasn't been at this stage, my understanding, is alcohol, cigarettes, although, you know, some people um, use those and rely on those, but we're helping people and we're certainly subsidising freight. There should not be price gouging. That was one issue that was raised yesterday. That's going to happen though, isn't it? Yeah, well, there was a sense yesterday that, sorry, there was a sense yesterday that that, um, prices on the ground in Kununurra had risen significantly. That should not be happening, so we'll investigate that. People should be paying similar prices for their food, their fruit and veggies as they are now, noting that the state is subsidising freight to get there. We don't. We want to make sure no one misses out. And so yesterday I went to Bailey, which is one of those communities on the other side of the river, and while it didn't have any damage in it, it's it's cut off from Fitzroy Crossing, and so um, paramedics have been airlifted over to that side. There are police now over that side of the river. The shop has been stocked, and we're stocking a range of shops uh, in, in communities across the Kimberley. So we, don't wanna, we wanna make sure that no one misses out. Now, if there are people who think they are missing out or, or are afraid or have got issues, they're encouraged to ring 13 DFAIRS and tell us what they're concerned about and we'll see if we can come up with a solution. Okay, because just on those subsidies though, is there is there a possibility that uh, that definition will be expanded? Because I'll, I'll use the example um, that was highlighted in an ABC article this morning about a mechanic um, who might be waiting for some parts and now they're essential for him and his business. Would you deem that as essential goods? Look, I would. Uh, I think we, you know we need cars moving, we need trucks moving, we need our volunteer vehicles that are being used on the ground moving, and we need the, the mechanics on the ground to be able to do that work. So I would deem that. So I'm happy to. I haven't seen the article. I'm happy to re- get get someone to reach out to that person today and work out how we can assist. Um, and what about those diesel generators that you've sent up there um, to power Fitzroy Crossing? Um, that's going to be a substantial ongoing cost. Do you know what that will cost and how long you'll have to continue that for? Look, we'll have to have diesel um, while the, the road is not passable between Broome and Willare. So that's a, that's that kind of two-week to 28-day period. So, yes, we have airlifted generators. We've airlifted a big crane. They arrived in Broome yesterday and they'll be barged to Derby over the coming days. Uh, there is enough LNG supply in Fitzroy Crossing until the 24th, and sorry, in, in, in Derby until the 24th, and then in Fitzroy Crossing until the 26th. In the meantime, those generators will be up. We have teams on the ground, you know, plugging them in or doing what's needed to, to have them ready. And then the, the LNG will be turned off and the diesel will be, will be turned on at the same time. So it'll be seamless for people on the ground, but they will be on the ground for, you know, for weeks until we get the road open again, because you can't transport LNG on those barges or in the air. They need to come in on, on road trains. So we want to get that, that road open as quickly as possible for a range of reasons, including for fuel for communities. I believe barges might also be used to get high school students back to school too. Yeah, well, there's barges and, I mean, there's 21 aircraft as well, Nadia, uh, in the skies um, that, that are available to us that we're using to um, to transport people uh, and indeed vehicles in some cases 
and also food, food supplies. So yeah, there is uh, people working on a strategy to get uh, kids out of communities uh, where they are for school holidays back to where they need to go and teachers and indeed kids back to the communities where they need to start school. Minister Buddy was on the ground with me yesterday, the education minister, with some uh, people from the education department, and they were, they, they've got to focus on, on that, that element of, of the recovery or just getting, you know, getting people back to, to normal. Finally, Minister, what do you reckon this is all going to cost? Are we talking billions of dollars here? Oh, it's still too early to say. I think now that the rapid damage assessments have been have been done, that you know we, we at least know what damage exists out there, um, and that's done in a range of categories: totally damaged, severely damaged, moderate, slight, no damage. I mean, they have. You know, thankfully, some communities um, were unscathed from ex-tropical cyclone Ellie, but others have borne the brunt of it. So this will cost a lot. But you know, we had the Prime Minister and the Premier on the ground the other day, the state and the Commonwealth. Uh, are committed to you know to, to, to getting these communities uh, back on track as quickly as possible. Emergency Services Minister Stephen Dawson with Nadia Mitsopoulos. 26 past 12. I'm Bevan Hates from Manjima and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. Very shortly, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology checking conditions right around the state this afternoon and looking ahead to the rest of the week. What is in store for you in your region? Also, news headlines. Jonathan Beale coming into the studio very shortly, around about half past 12, to give you the latest ABC News headlines. First off, you've been to the supermarket to buy eggs recently. It won't come as a surprise that there's a supply issue with some shops restricting purchases to just one carton per customer. And that could be the reality for months, maybe up until, say, August. Local WA egg producers believe supply is down 50% because of a lack of product coming in from the eastern states. Infrastructure issues, particularly with refurbishing flooded railway from Sydney to Perth, have made it difficult to get eggs from the east into WA, and that means there is increased demand on local producers. Colin Ford is one of those. He runs Albany Farm Fresh Eggs, and he says the demand for eggs far outstrips supply. Oh, look, we've just seen a massive increase in inquiries about egg production. So it's very finely tuned between supply and demand. So we've got our regular customers that have eggs off us every week of the year and then there's certain customers that just get their eggs from across east and they rely on their supply so they've obviously been short of eggs and then they're just going around all local producers trying to get a supply from them and obviously like most types of agriculture you can't just flick a switch and get extra production so it's just left a lot of people short of eggs. By how much would you say egg supply is down? Oh look it's it's probably in the region of 50% so we've been receiving inquiries from cruise ships, from catering companies in Port Hedland. We get weekly calls from supermarkets in Perth, all of who, you know, we haven't dealt with before and then they just have been phoning up looking for eggs. Are you able to meet that demand? No, no, we can't. Like I say, our supply is finely tuned to demand and then there's certain customers that just look for cheap eggs, which is what they get from the eastern states. You know, we're WA's uses a bit of a dumping ground, whereas our customers pay a premium for our fresh locally produced eggs that are delivered direct into their premises. So we, our priority is to look after them. What is this solution to this egg shortage we're seeing? 
Well, we're, we're actually seeing people now locking in to local suppliers. I've got a meeting next week with a hotel chain about increasing our production, which we are doing at the moment. But we're doing that off the back of people that have locked in their requirements from April onwards. So we're, we're definitely seeing people now that it's a bit of a shot across the bow for people about relying on the eastern states for their supply of eggs. How long do you think this shortage will last? Well, if they forecast until August, like I said before, you can't just get pullets on the ground and then laying eggs as a fair leading time to get those pullets in the system and, and, and producing eggs. So they forecast until August is going to be a shortage, so another seven or eight months. How do you feel about the shortage overall? It's good for us and it's a realisation for customers that you can't just play the markets. We had one customer in it was only in September he came to us and said, oh, look, I can get eggs cheaper. So we said, fair enough, we're not going to reduce our price. And then it was only in November he came back to us asking for eggs. And we said, no, I'm sorry. It's, you know, you can't, you can't play us like that. It's, it's a two-way thing. Colin Ford, he's the owner of Albany Farm Fresh Eggs and he was catching up with Sophie Johnson. It is half past 12, time for an update from the newsroom with Jonathan Beale. Thanks, Belinda. A Qantas flight from Auckland to Sydney has landed at Kingsford Smith Air- Airport after issuing a mayday call during the flight. Emergency services were on standby as a precaution for when flight QF144 touched down. No other details are available at this stage, but the aircraft has landed safely. The case of a 21-year-old man charged with the murder of Indigenous boy Cassius Turvey in Perth's east has been adjourned for 10 weeks. Jack Stephen James Brealey is alleged to have beaten the 15-year-old with a metal pole on October the 13th last year. He died 10 days later. Mr Brealey appeared today via video link from Casuarina Prison. And a 28-year-old man will be defending a charge of murdering a 31-year-old woman in Kununurra. Warwick Walker Bear appeared in the Stirling Gardens Magistrates Court in Perth via video link from Hakia Prison and officially pleaded not guilty to murdering Miss Waterloo in October 2021. Her body was discovered in bushland about two weeks after she was last seen alive. Mr Walker Bear was remanded in custody until he appears in the Supreme Court in March. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate that. It is 29 to 1. Still to come, off to Catanning for the results of the sheep market. Tracy Kilner going through yarding and prices for you. And numbers up, I think around about... Up around 2,000 on, on last week, around the 10,000 head mark uh, of sheep and lambs at Catanning today. Also taking a look at fertiliser prices and a record month for grain exports for the month of November, just last year. And also CBH responds to that industrial action happening at the Quinana Grain Terminal, uh, striking again today over some non-financial work-related issues that the workers there are trying to come to some sort of an agreement with CBH and CBH will respond to that. I I mean, respond in an email form. I did request an interview, but um, instead shot through an email. So I'll go through some of the details in that for you shortly. In a moment, off to the Bureau of Meteorology.
27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And hopefully... Crossing to the Bureau of Meteorology shortly. I'm hoping Angeline Prasad is there waiting for me now. Angeline, hello. Holiday penalty. They didn't even... No. Hi, Angeline. Yes, in Well, Angeline's having a good old chat in the background there, so hopefully um, she'll be there in just a moment. I think she's making her way. I can hear the microphone now. Hi, Angeline. Hi there. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good to hear you there. Uh, Let's have a look at conditions in the north of the state. What can you see this afternoon and what lies ahead for the rest of the week? Um, So there is a bit of cloud around and thunderstorms have just started firing up across the eastern Kimberley and one or two across the western Kimberley. So this afternoon and into the overnight period, we'll continue to see those showers and thunderstorms across the north. And especially over Western Kimberley, there's a risk of heavy falls again today from those uh, thunderstorms. So these thunderstorms, when they do develop a slow-moving, the atmosphere is fairly moist. So uh, they are going to produce a bit of rainfall. And also across the interior and across the Pilbara and and across the uh, northwest parts of the Gascoigne today, we are going to see more showers and thunderstorms. We did see some. There was a bit of rainfall from them yesterday, and that's going to continue today. So risk of damaging winds from the thunderstorms storms. Um, Now, this pattern is not really going to change much uh, until the end of the week and going into next week, we'll still see those diurnally driven showers and thunderstorms across the north. Um, There will still be very isolated heavy falls for the remainder of the week across the Kimberley and we might see some river rises through these falls, but not likely to impact um, any any flooding levels. It will hinder uh, the the ongoing recovery efforts there though. Um, The thunderstorms are most likely during the afternoon and overnight period. Now, across the southwest, um, we do have a deepening uh, west coast trough. Um, and uh, so what it is doing is it's dragging in heat uh, across the uh, sort of from the northeast uh, into the southwest of the state. So we are seeing warming temperatures, especially along the west coast. Um, and that heat will continue to build uh, for the remainder of the week. In fact, we start to see a low-intensity heat wave build across the western parts of the Southwest Land Division um, towards the end of the week. The West Coast Trough is going to be pretty much slow-moving, so going to move offshore in the morning and then move back in with the, with the fresh sea breezes in the afternoon. And that's because we're, we're, staying, we're going to see a stagnant pattern for the remain, remainder of the week with a firm ridge of high pressure along the south coast. It's not going to move much, so continue to produce uh, those fresh and gusty easterly winds um, in the west uh, in, during the morning periods. Now, with that West Coast trough um, pretty much slow moving near the uh, near the west coast of the Southwest Land Division, we are going to see increasing showers and thunderstorms uh, for the remainder of the week. So not so much today, but definitely from tomorrow, especially from I- 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 the thunderstorms may start from tomorrow morning. Um, so across uh, parts of the lower west, including Perth, central west, and then extending further south to the um, southwest capes and uh, to the south coast, um, uh, this weekend, and then as that trough becomes a little bit more mobile during the weekend, we'll see those th- uh, shower and thunderstorm activity extend further inland across the southwest land division into the gold fields. Uh, these thunderstorms will have some rainfall, so they're not really going to be dry, but as with any thunderstorm, there's always that risk of lightning. Along the edges of this sort of shower and thunderstorm activity, there will, there, uh, there will be some dry lightning as well. Um, 
looking at warnings uh, for the remainder of today. Um, so just the marine wind warning out. Uh, we have got a strong warning across the Geraldton Coast, Lenslin and Lewin Coasts today and similarly for tomorrow. Angeline, thank you so much for all those details. It is 23 to 1. Taking a look at the rainfall figures now, a look back at the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and just letting you know about the ones that registered five mils and over. Starting in northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, Bedford Downs Airstrip 34, Curtin Aero 21, Fitzroy Crossing Aero 5, Margaret River Airstrip 12, Marion Downs 10, Nicholson 11, Portsmouth 7, Siddons Creek 22, Sturt Creek 19 and Yampi Sound had 7. In the Pilbara, Kalindi 21, Kulawanya 17, De Grey 27, Indy 30, Pardu 18, Telfer Aero 22 and Yarri had 10. And not a drop of rain in the Southwest Land Division. 22 to 1. Well, the state's main grain handler says it's negotiating in good faith with the Maritime Union of Australia and workers at the Quinana Grain Terminal to finalise a new enterprise agreement. However, the group won't front up here today on the Country Hour to talk to you about it. As I requested, instead, it's sent through an email. And it says the CBH group provided a generous offer to the union before Christmas including an annual 5% increase to wages for three years and other favourable terms. As Jeff Kassar from the MUA told you yesterday, the workers agreed to the 5% wage increase but still have two key non-financial work-related claims to settle. They are a transition to retirement clause, which sort of means if two people hit the age of 55, they can job share, and an agreement on representation at disciplinary meetings. Over the past week, there have been 24-hour stoppages every 48 hours at the Quinana Grain Terminal, and the workers are striking at the terminal again today. The union says the industrial action is set to continue with a consecutive seven-day stoppage starting next week on the 27th of January. It's going to continue for at least as long as until CBH provides us with a, a drafted document that the workforce can read, ready to go, because we're dealing with Jekyll and Hyde and we don't know who we're going to get at the table on any given day. And we've agreed in principle twice before on large chunks of claims and then they've, the company's reneged. We can't just keep walking inside the gate and, and assuming that they're going to keep to their word each time, we've got to a point where we need that sort of Damocles hanging over their head so that we know what the result's going to be and we know that we can trust them when they tell us that they've agreed to something in principle. Jeff Cassar from the MUA WA branch. The CBH group says it's disappointed with the MUA's decision to engage in industrial action because the co-op is dealing with the significant task of receiving and outloading a record harvest. CBH says the first half of the calendar year is the peak shipping window for the WA grains industry and this industrial action by the MUA and its members disrupts shipping during this window. The union's Jeff Kassar understands the significance of the Quinana facility. One would consider that Quinana, the fact that Quinana handles more grain than the other three ports put together, 
that it would have a significant impact on the company's ability to export grain. Even with the current gentle protected action that's been put on of 24-hour stoppages every 48 hours, we're still talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in demurrage for ships sitting at anchor waiting to be loaded. It really is quite amazing that the company is so determined to dig in on some of these issues. In the email I received from CBH, it says there's another bargaining meeting with the union tomorrow where CBH looks forward to discussing the union's claims and making positive progress. I'll keep you up to date on those developments. This is the Country Hour. It is 18 to 1. And in other grains news today, the latest Australian Bureau of Statistics figures shows a record amount of grain was exported out of the country during November last year. Matt Kelly is from Kelly Grains, a grain handling business based in Finlay, New South Wales. He says nearly three and a half million tonnes was exported in bulk and containers. For that month of uh, November, Australia exported 3.4 million tonnes, which look, just goes to show probably there's a little bit more export capacity out there, but you know, when things kind of go all right in regards to no floods and, and issues with transporting grain to port, you know, hence, hence the record number. Was that number expected? Look, it was probably a bit surprising, but then again, I think just a bit more of the export demand, big harvest in in, uh, in WA, and we saw quite a bit of a large carryout uh, over there as well. So, you know, there's plenty of grain there, um, you know, to export. And the Australian harvest here locally is wrapped up almost, pretty much? Yeah, look, pretty much. You'd nearly say probably across the border of all Australia would be pretty much 95% completed and... Um, uh, you know, New South Wales has kind of come to a bit to a screaming halt. Overall, the big story in New South Wales is probably the quality was better than expected. We probably only maybe saw only about 20% of the crop downgraded to feed, and and you know, with all the rains and the weather situation before harvest, we we're probably expecting that figure to at least be 50% of the crop. So that was a bit surprising, and and you know, Vic quality and quantity it was better than expected, and you know, a record harvest in SA and. And, and another record run in, in WA, you know, the world's kind of looking at Australia going, geez, there's plenty of grain there to export. <laughs> Which is, I'm sure, a good thing with all the flooding and everything we've seen. It might feel like over here it wasn't such a good a good harvest, was it? Uh, look, in, definitely in some parts, you know, we, we probably saw some harvest back to probably 50 to, to 80% compared to last year. But considering the figures we've, we've had, you know, we're still on track for one of the biggest Aussie crops compared to the last couple of years. Probably one thing just to keep an eye on, it's quite dry in North, North Africa at the moment and essentially about the fourth driest you know, weather records from a historical point of view. So a little bit more to play out from there. But then again, you know, there's plenty of cheap you know, wheat coming out of the Black Sea as well. Matt Kelly from Kelly Grains in New South Wales speaking to Annie Brown, 16 to 1. Well, as you know, harvest is pretty much wrapped up for most WA farmers. I mean, it was long and drawn out uh, this season and, um, you know, even on the weekend, some people were still going around and I'm sure some of you are still going around just finishing up some bits and pieces before the actual final end of harvest. But how do you celebrate at the end of that? Do you catch up with family, maybe a trip to the coast? Um, Or what about playing live gigs with your band on an Australian tour. 
Well, that's what some people are doing. Sophie Johnson caught up with the farmers turned rockers, David House and Henry Carrington-Jones, from the indie rock band Old Mervs. Having just finished harvest on their family properties near Kojanoff in WA's Great Southern, David House and Henry Carrington-Jones are trading the header for the stage. They've just kicked off a national tour with their band, Old Mervs. The duo find balance in work life on the farm to playing live gigs and wouldn't have it any other way. Paddock to performance. We kind of literally went from a paddock, like we were both in Kojana doing a harvest in about 2016 and then we went back to Henry's donger and just sort of set up some gear and started jamming and then now we're still still doing it. Yeah, it was it was an odd one. Like I played in bands through school and stuff with mates, like similar sort of music and Dave was interested in music as well and we'd sort of every now and then at school we'd mucked around together, like playing and then um, we kind of just had yeah, rained out and harvest one day and we're like, oh let's set like the old drum setup that was at home up and in the music room and we just started like drinking beer basically and playing and like mucking around and then it sort of like was fun so we just kept doing it. So how much would you say your farming upbringing has influenced to where you are now? I don't know how, how it sort of influenced music. It's a good question. I'd say it'd be like probably just so I didn't have to farm would be the inspiration. Oh, <laughs> I'm geez, joking. That's harsh. I'd just tell uh, Dad that to annoy him. Yeah, yeah. I'd say I'd say character-wise, like, big time. It's, yeah. um, like, the music industry is a very different one to farming. It's probably the other end of the spectrum on a lot of sort of elements, and it's probably good to, like, come in with a country background, a sort of country aspect, I guess, because you're a bit more practical about things, and, yeah, you sort of there get the job done, and nothing's a problem, uh, sort of attitude, and, yeah, tr- just try and be good people, I guess. Um so yeah, it's that's probably what's influenced us the most. It's just the character side of things um, compared to the music sort of people. Yeah. How do you manage or balance music and helping your family out on the farm? It's not as busy. Well, it's sort of getting busy now. Previously, it hasn't been too busy. Like we've had so much time in between touring, and like we've really only just started getting into it. So we were just always pretty much just working, and then. We'd go out to Perth on the weekends and gig or go up and practice or write. So now it will be probably a bit hard. I think a bit less time on the fun these days. But, yeah, it was pretty easy at the start. Yeah, having folks that, like, were, like, happy about what we are doing so they would be keen for us to go and do it and yeah, take so some work really off or whatever, yeah, so that helped big time at the start. That's probably why we were able to do it, really. Yeah, having time to sort of get into it while we did have a job so sort of thing was definitely hugely important. Is this something you guys see yourself doing for a while doing music but also still balancing a bit of farm life? Definitely we had a chat the other day and we're like every summer it'd be nice to sort of at least get two weeks off or like three just to go and do harvest because it's just it's just enjoyable like going back to the farm and sort of getting back to that sort of working life is just it's pretty important when you're touring and you're just sort of always at a pub and always doing that sort of carry on. Going back and doing a bit of work is is really helpful for the brain. Good, good, yeah, good balance. Just doing static tasks. Like when you're touring, it's just so much stimulation. You're always on the road. Like new hotels, like new planes. You're excited about getting on a plane and 
um, then yeah, before you know it, you're at Soundcheck at the pub at 2pm 2, 2 and they're offering you beers and you, yeah, then it's 12am and then you're hopping into bed and you wake up and it's the same sort of thing again. So coming back to the farm is like, I think it's a real good thing to just go back and chill out and do what, what I guess most people do, which is a job that sort of is the same thing most days and whatnot. So yeah, it's, um, it's probably an important thing to keep up, I reckon. And how was harvest for both of you guys this year? It was good. We got it done. Got it done quicker than usual, actually, which is nice. Usually we go, like, halfway into January, but I think they got it done sort of in the first week, which is which is a bonus for us. And you yeah. guys had a, you had an interesting finish. Oh, we had an absolute shocker of a harvest, to be honest. We, um, we've got a very old header. Dad's a bit too scared to upgrade on the header front sort of side of things, so we were running an old older girl and or two actually one was an old old one and they both broke down by the end so we actually had contractors come in to take the uh, paint off in the last three or four days which was um good so it was interesting but it went well yield wise and that so or well enough we're happy so yeah it was good good to get it done and to go from that sort of situation to on stage with people singing the words to your songs was that a bit of a good way to finish harvest it's a good way to start the year for sure like finish harvest and then you sort of get out of that like you say you like going back and working and then when you've got a tour coming up it's pretty exciting so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword really would you rather be singing or shearing sheep singing <laughs> if i could shear sheep i would like i'd definitely rather it be a shearer i actually wouldn't mind like a bit, bit of coin in it being able to get, yeah and I'd have a much, I'd have a much better physique as well, which I wouldn't mind. Yeah. Like a big, big tank. Don't know, bust my back up though. Yeah. Do yourself a favour and go and check out Sophie's online story uh, because there's some great shots there of the boys, the band. Uh, which they have shot through. So them on stage and the crowd in the background, quite a contrast to the harvesting job. David House and Henry Carrington-Jones from the WA band Old Mervs speaking with Sophie Johnson. As I said, Sophie's got the story online and some great photos too. Just search Farmer Rockers Harvest ABC to take a look at it. Farmer Rockers Harvest ABC and you'll see that online story. It is... Nine to one. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, the price of fertiliser is starting to ease off a little bit, which you'll be happy about after paying record high prices over the last year or so. Andrew Whitelaw is a market analyst with Episode 3. He says the best way to track fertiliser prices is to keep an eye on the price of natural gas and other energies. Yeah, so if we look at uh, fertiliser prices especially synthetic fertiliser prices, they're basically highly correlated with natural gas and, and other energies as well, like coal. And the majority of urea around the world is, is made using conversion of, of natural gas into, into urea, effectively, with a, a whole process. So basically, natural gas is the feedstock for making urea. So it makes sense that when we have natural gas prices higher, then we have urea prices higher. And that's what we've really seen for the last, you know, at least 12 months. We've seen high, high gas prices. Uh, one of those big factors has been the war in Ukraine, uh, but also other factors like the reopening after COVID has, has also impacted uh, natural gas prices around the world. And so 
that's why we've seen a significant um, fertilizer price over the last 12 months. But you say that now this fertilizer price is actually starting to drop. Why is that happening? Because the war in Ukraine is still happening. Yeah, well, that's, we're starting to see some, some good signs. And so if we look at uh, fertilizer prices in the last couple of months, they've come under a lot of pressure. And I'm talking about the fertilizer price, the wholesale price to buy it from the Middle East. We buy most of our urea in Australia from the Middle East. You know, this month so far is trading at about 645 Aussie dollars a tonne, free on board. So obviously there's a bit of freight to get it here, not not a huge amount. And, uh, and then... So that's 645 is, is a lot lower than it was this time last year when it was closer to $1,100. And uh, so we are seeing a downward slide. But but basically what we've seen is the last year, in the last sort of couple of months, it's been a little bit milder, the um, the winter in Europe, which has reduced demand for, for gas. And there's also been a bit of demand destruction as people just couldn't afford to pay the gas prices they that were on offer for either industrial or domestic uses. But we're also seeing things like, uh, because of that high price of gas in Europe, we're seeing more cargoes of LNG going from the likes of China into Europe. And so we are seeing uh, what what typically happens in, in economics is that high prices are the cure for high prices. So that is reflect, being reflected in, in reducing gas prices and therefore reducing fertilizer prices. However, the big question remains is how much of that, you know, overseas fall gets passed on to on to local producers. You know, will yeah, I imagine fertilizer prices, whilst they're they're not that transparent, it's hard to get a price. There's no publicly available data on Australian fertilizer prices. I imagine it's closer to the thousand dollars than the uh, you know the seven eight hundred dollars a ton mark. Mm, and that's certainly what what we're hearing on the ground is that while prices have dropped from the standard that they were over the past almost 12 months, they are still around that $1,000 per tonne mark. Do you think that they will keep dropping or is the Australian market going to do its own thing? Okay, I, 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 unfortunately, I think the Australian market probably will do its own thing and it'll take a long time for those prices to, to flow through to the domestic market. Uh, but we shall see it. All it takes is, uh, you know, somebody to come in and, you know, order a new, order more cargos for the new season, and uh, and then to be priced at a lower, lower value, and to be able to price in with, you know, without having to uh, price in such a large margin. And I guess at the end of the day, markets are markets, and the lowest price is what wins. Yeah, and so you mentioned that as it warms up in Europe, that also plays a key factor, and it is still fairly solidly winter over there. As we do move forward into winter over here and it goes into summer in Europe, do you expect those those international prices to keep going down as well? Look, the one thing I would say at the moment is we're still dealing in an extremely sort of volatile environment where, where the market is very, very changeable. A lot of what happens in these markets are really determined by what is inside Putin's head and what he decides to do on any given day. And so that is the major concern is we don't really know what will happen. Uh, so it is a fairly uncertain environment, probably one of the most uncertain environments we've had for, for a long period of time. All we can say at the moment is the trend has been downwards for the last couple of months. And all we can do is hope that, you know, some of that gets passed on to uh, to local producers. Hopefully, hopefully fertilizer companies hedge their, uh, hedge their risk and uh, it flows through the same way that 
you know, gra- changes in grain prices overseas generally flow through to Australia and vice versa. Andrew Whitelaw, he's an analyst with episode three and he was speaking to Alice Marshall. Three minutes to one and off to get tanning shortly. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The Prime Minister hits back at criticism of the government's intervention in the gas market, saying the policy is working as planned. Australian troops on their way to the UK to help train Ukrainian forces. A former Australian commander says it will also be a chance for our soldiers to learn. And teacher shortages worsen in New South Wales, where thousands of teaching positions remain vacant. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. Off to the markets now, and 10,725 sheep and lambs were penned for sale at the Catanning Market today. That is up 2,294 on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner is keeping an eye on proceedings at Catanning today, and some good numbers today, Tracy. Numbers increased again this week with a total yarding of 10,725 head. Quality was mixed with prime well-presented lambs trending up, selling to a top of $161, while poor, light poor lines were of minimal value. A large gallery of buyers were in attendance looking for feeder lambs, as well as the usual processor and export buyers. Mature lines eased on most categories, with ewe mutton easing up to $20 a head, with a top price of $95 paid for merino ewes carrying a full fleece. The lightweight lambs sold from 27 to 110. Heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight sold from 76 to 126 dollars. Trade weight lambs made from 105 to 148, and the heavier lambs sold up to 161 dollars a head. A mixed quality yarding of merino hoggets saw ewes sell from 22 to 85 dollars, and the weathers returned 25 to 80 dollars a head. Store ewes eased, selling from 25 to 65 dollars. Prime medium weight ewes made from 40 to 95 carrying a fleece and heavy ewes sold from 50 to 85 dollars a head. Mature rams gained with demand selling from 30 to 100 dollars. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much for going through those details at Catanning today, Tracy. Uh, about 30 seconds or so away from the news at one. And just recapping the main stories today, extensive road damage in the Kimberley has left WA's only major northern abattoir inaccessible. And the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, says it's negotiating in good faith with the Maritime Union of Australia and workers at the Quinana Grain Terminal to try and finalise a new enterprise agreement. Great to talk to you today on the ABC. Time for the news, one o'clock.